This is Michael Leary with More Than Meets the IRB, a conversation about research participants and the people who study them. More Than Meets the IRB is a joint initiative of Washington University in St. Louis and public responsibility in medicine and research. Primer advances the highest ethical standards in the conduct of biomedical, behavioral, and social science research. Primer accomplishes this mission through education, membership services, professional certification, public policy initiatives, and community building. In this episode, we have a brief history of HIV-AIDS research from someone on the front lines of the epidemic. We are going to hear about how a researcher moves from encountering a tragic health crisis to drug development in response. And Dr. Anthony Fauci captures the ethical tensions in this situation well because he shares it as a story. It has a very dramatic first and second act. It has a cast of characters, including himself, and it even has a plot twist. Clinical trials play a central role in responding to any epidemic. Part of the ethical review of research in this context is negotiating the interplay between researchers, communities, and regulations, which often seem to be in conflict. Here we have a story of a researcher experiencing this conflict firsthand and finding a groundbreaking pathway through it. This episode comes from a keynote address that Dr. Fauci delivered at the 2014 Advancing Ethical Research Conference titled Addressing the HIV-AIDS Pandemic, the Ethical Challenges. Dr. Anthony Fauci has been director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease for over 30 years. He is a 2008 awardee of the Presidential Medal of Honor. Among a remarkably long list of scientific advances, contributions, publications, awards, and honors, Dr. Fauci has played a critical role in research on HIV-AIDS and other immunodeficiencies. So I've picked out five issues that I'm going to go through quickly. And again, I apologize if it's quick because it isn't as definitive as it might sound. So let's go through them, and I'm going to give you a snapshot of an example of each of these, knowing that there are many other examples. The first is what we experienced during early drug development. And I I say it as starting from nothing and the ethics in the broad sense of randomized controlled trials when everybody is dying from a disease in which there is no treatment. That is a relatively unique situation that we faced. I had been in active medicine with potentially lethal diseases for the previous nine years before I changed my career in 1981 to focus on HIV AIDS and I had never seen anything remotely resembling the tension and the passion associated with a situation when people are dying from something where you have no idea what it is and you're trying to do something about it. That gave rise to something that I think was epitomized in a movie that I know many of you have seen, namely the Dallas Buyers Club that starred Matthew McConaughey in his Academy Award winning role. Dallas Buyers Club is the 2013 biopic telling the story of Ron Woodruff, an AIDS patient in the mid-1980s. This story about AIDS treatment, research, a stigmatized population, and the FDA is essential viewing for anyone involved in IRB review of clinical research. It is a vivid, real-world example of a lot of the ethical tensions we consider. For those of you who didn't see it, it, it really personified the pain and the passion and the frustration of trying to do something when you had nothing. And the Bias Club would get drugs 
under no clinical trial, just distribute the drugs. And there was an extraordinary argument about the time that don't even test them, just give them because it was very frustrating. These were some of the drugs that we were faced with, with people essentially demanding it. And when the federal government didn't make it available, they would go through the buyer's club. Namely, they would have people that would go to other countries, Mexico or whatever. The third one down is HPA 23. Some of you may remember Rock Hudson flew to Paris to get that from the Pasteur because he couldn't get it in the United States. There really were buyer's clubs, and I had the opportunity to deal directly and develop strong relationships with people who were actually involved in the buyer's club. From New York, there was Michael Callan, the folk singer who was an HIV-AIDS patient who died in 1983. And he actually started a group that actually distributed about a million dollars worth of AL-721 to persons with AIDS who were desperate for treatment. There was another one on the other side of the country in San Francisco, a very, very dear friend of mine, Marty Delaney, the founding director of Project Inform, who may have been at least partially the character from whom Matthew McConaughey's Woodruff was derived because he would go frequently from California to Mexico to pick up drugs in order to do that. Then came the issue, if there are drugs available, should you actually do a randomized controlled trial? And, and again, it was 30 years ago, but there was extraordinary tension then. And with some, not all, there were many activists who were demanding to randomize controlled trial. Not every activist wanted to just distribute drugs. So we finally did the iconic randomized controlled trial, and I want to spend a half a minute on this because this is very relevant to what's going on right now with Ebola, and I know you're going to have a panel on Ebola, but I'm going to bring in Ebola occasionally during this talk in order to link it to a present-day challenge. And this is the iconic study which was done here in the United States it was done in a, in a very quick way, and you can see the results are pretty striking, that the individuals who received AZT, if you look at one death versus 19, from that point on, it was clear that this worked. Now, it's interesting because there was a gap, probably the shortest gap in the history of the FDA, between the time the data came in and the time they approved it. But once it approved it, I became the buyer's club because what I did is that we did something at the NIH that was never been done before. We actually became a drug distribution through our clinical trial networks from the time this was proven, and this paper came out months later. Unlike the New England Journal now, you send it in, it comes out three days later, but back then it was months later. This really is one of the iconic randomized control trials. Efficacy of AZT in the Treatment of Patients with AIDS and AIDS-Related Complex, a double-blind, placebo-controlled trial, which was published in New England Journal of Medicine on July 23, 1987. It was very successful research, demonstrating the effectiveness of AZT. But in order to deliver the drug quickly enough to people who needed it, they had to get a little creative. The solution they came up with was groundbreaking. Dr. Fauci calls it a sea change in his thinking about the regulatory environment, and the story about how he arrived here is as fascinating as the research itself. Let's go to number two. Access to unproven drugs after you have a proven drug. 
And that is the concept of what we call parallel track. What is parallel track? Parallel track is to make available with appropriate informed consent an experimental intervention outside of the restrictions of a clinical trial to those individuals who cannot participate in the trial for a variety of reasons. There's a 300-patient trial in New York, and you live in San Francisco. Or you don't fit the exclusion criteria. Your hematocrit is 37 instead of 39. Or the trial is fully enrolled. What do you do with those people who need to get involved in that? Well, let me tell you a little bit about how that evolved. And it really was a major sea change in my attitude towards the flexibility versus the rigidity of the scientific and regulatory community. It was really something that I have to say really, quite frankly, changed my life. And that is my relating to and putting myself in the place of a patient or a potential patient. And that was brought home to me by the AIDS activists, by a number of them. One in particular, Larry Kramer, who was my nemesis for years, who is now one of my very close and dear friends and has been a patient of mine. Larry early on was really prodding the gay community to act up, hence the word, against government indifference on HIV AIDS. At the time, since I was unabashedly out there trying to get funds for an activity for HIV AIDS when not very many people were interested in it, that was the good news. The bad news is that I became the face of the United States federal government. There were some good things about that because it really brought to my attention some of the things I never would have realized. Larry wanted to gain my attention, and he did. On the Sunday edition of the San Francisco Examiner, he wrote a paper called I Call You Murderers, an open letter to an incompetent idiot, Dr. Anthony Fauci of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. So he caught my attention. Um, and actually, even before he caught my attention, I was listening to things that he and his colleagues were saying when the scientific community, because of the theatrical nature of it, would shun the, the activist community, which was a big mistake. So they kept on putting the pressure. And just give you one example. They thought that I was a regulatory person as well as a scientist, and that I was preventing drugs from getting approved quickly. So they stormed the NIH and said, Dr. Fauci, you're killing us and putting me up there with Ronald Reagan about AL-721. When they found out that I didn't work at the FDA, they said, well, then let's storm the NIH. And they did. But what they did in between them was give me the opportunity to sit down with them and listen to what they had to say. And there are so many people that I have interacted with, so many people in ACT Up, Greg Gonzalez and Mark Harrington and Peter Staley and on and on. But two of the people that really brought home to me the importance of accessibility of drugs when they're not within the context of a clinical trial. And that was Marty Delaney, who was one of the Buyers Club people who was converted immediately to understanding the clinical trial. And among many ACT UP members, Jim Igo, who was one of the founding members of ACT UP. 
And what they actually did was convince me by inviting me multiple times to San Francisco in the Castro district and into New York in the village to understand what was going on there. And I'll give you an example of why I converted, and I'll explain to you how that happened. The federal government and the FDA thought this was anathema. Never should you violate the integrity of a clinical trial. There's exclusion criteria, there's a certain number that should go into a trial, and that's it. And it wasn't that they were bad people or insensitive, that's what we've been doing for decades and decades. So then let me give you a couple of examples. After AZT was approved, the next drug was didanosine, or DDI, the second drug approved. It was tested and published in the New England Journal in a non-inferiority comparison with AZT. Three limbs, AZT, low-dose DDI, high-dose DDI. The parallel track allowed distribution of DDI outside of the clinical trial because people were failing AZT. AZT alone as monotherapy lasted just in many people for several months. Yet we would not allow them to go on DDI if they failed or if they couldn't tolerate AZT. And when you're a bureaucrat in a room, you say, well, you know, that's just the way things go. Parallel track didn't accept that. The other one was the one that completely changed my mind. And it was the Gancyclovir study. Gancyclovir is an experimental drug for CMV retinitis. But in the clinical trial for Gancyclovir, one of the exclusion criteria, amazing, was that if you were on AZT, you couldn't be on Gancyclovir, which means they wanted to make sure that the data were pristine. So Marty took me to San Francisco in the Castro District and showed me a, a few patients. The dilemma was either, and, and a patient told me this, so the alternative is either you go blind or you die. Because if you get off AZT, you die. If you're not on Gancyclovir, you go blind. That was the thing that changed my mind about parallel track. So Marty invited me back to San Francisco and put me before a town hall meeting. And I got up and I took a deep breath and went against the United States federal government. And what I did was say, I actually embrace the parallel track. Little did I know that Marty, brilliant guy that he is, had invited to my talk three reporters, Randy Schiltz from the San Francisco Chronicle, someone from the LA Times, and Gina Collada from the New York Times. So after I finished, I got on the red eye to come back, and I thought for sure I was gonna get fired. When I got back to Washington, D.C., I had a phone call from the White House uh, saying they wanted to talk to me because it was a clear public repudiation of the FDA. Now, I don't have time to tell you the story, but I had become, for a variety of reasons, pretty good friends with George H.W. Bush. And his chief of staff called me and said, what is going on? And I explained to them about parallel track. And to my great amazement, they said, that sounds like a great idea. About an hour later, the FDA comes up and says, we totally agree with you. This is exactly what should be done. And in fact, four years later, they gave me and the chair and the, and the, uh, and the um, commissioner of the FDA a certificate of appreciation. Now, the reason I say that, it's kind of funny, but how ideas and thoughts change 
when you really take a look at what's going on. And that was a purely activist. I got credit. They should have given Jim Igo and Marty Delaney the certificate of appreciation. Certainly not me. This has been More Than Meets the IRB. Thank you for joining us. We will see you next time.